0: You're listening to the Co Main Event podcast, and now your hosts Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. Welcome in to another easy listening episode of the Co Main Event Mixed Martial Arts podcast. I'm Chad Dundas from ESPN.com, and joining me, as always, from USA Today and MMA It's Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week?
1: I'm great. I'm ready for some easy listening, as you put it. I like that. You know. You put put your 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 lights down low, light some candles, prepare a nice Italian cuisine, open a bottle of wine, and put on the co-main event podcast, and you are getting laid for sure.
0: Wow, you know what you, I'm saying? You just made it sound way sexier than oh, I yeah. even anticipated when I clicked record.
1: Oh yeah, you can just hear panties dropping all over the world right about now.
0: Did I ever tell you about the time that I was uh, grocery shopping at Albertsons and I was standing in front of the the meat display? Uh, you know, checking out the meats, uh-huh. trying to figure out what I was gonna make for dinner. Like and you do. This guy who worked at Albertson sidled up to me. Not doesn't know me from Adam. Didn't say a word to the guy, and he he like taps this this package of shrimp, and he says to me, "Shrimps, dude, guaranteed puss." <laughs> <laughs> no, you didn't. You have not
1: ever told me that, and it seems. Just remarkable that we could have known each other this long. I mean, does this happen earlier today? Because otherwise it seems like this is the kind of stuff that you would send me a text about
0: immediately. No, this was years ago. This happened at a time when I might have been a man concerned about the concept of guaranteed puss, but uh, it it was not appropriate or germane to that day.
1: Well, Uh, hey, for listeners out there of the podcast, if you didn't know that shrimps are guaranteed puss, now you know. Uh, If you have experiences uh, that can either refute or support this hypothesis, email them on into the podcast. You know, maybe there's a
0: special episode that we
1: can do dedicated just to that one topic.
0: Anyway, on to business. We're just a couple of days removed from UFC, UFC 153 where a bunch of dudes got what you might call statement wins. Uh, Antonio Rodrigo Nogueira and Damian Maya and John Fitch all sort of proved that they're not done yet. Uh, Phil Davis showed that he is continuing to improve. And uh, Glover Tashira, or as I like to call him, Grover Tashira, committed some terrible atrocities on the face of Fabio Maldonado. Um, but as, as it relates to the, this episode, we're really going to focus on the uh, UFC 153 main event, which saw... Uh, Anderson Silva beat Stefan Bonner in an amazing way. Just pure wizardry. Pure wizardry. And as always, we will discuss things in three rounds today. In round number one, Stefan Bonner said that the main event of UFC 153 would be the greatest moment of his life. Eh, I don't know if it worked out that way. Uh, Round number two, super fight or super frown. You worked on that all day, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, that took a while. It took a yeah. while to come up with. Uh, the entire world continues to cry out for Anderson Silva versus John Jones, a fight that would undoubtedly be the biggest bout in the history of mixed martial arts, and maybe one of the biggest fights in the history of fights. As for the two guys actually involved, they don't seem that interested. In round number three, just to, just to break it up a little bit, a little change of pace, we're going to talk some Strike Force because. Who knows how long Force will be around to even talk about um, all of that. Plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, as always, listener mail. Listener mail. Our first question this week comes. Oh, hey, before we do this, we should say probably the best week of listener mail in the history of the CME yeah, podcast. I feel week. like
1: and fitting coming off what was surprisingly maybe one of the best pay-per-view events uh ufc pay-per-view events of the year and then we get probably the best week or at least among the best weeks of listener mail people really stepped up their game yeah they did it It was was tough
0: it was impressive so we're going to do a slightly expanded edition of listener mail right now and then but uh, also
1: yeah i mean we should say that a lot of people had such good questions that they prompted discussion topics for the rounds. Yeah, we're going to
0: incorporate some questions into the actual rounds of today's show. So if you don't hear your question during listener mail, you know, don't lose hope. You might be coming up later in the show.
1: I I assume that half, at least 50-60% of our listeners just listen to see if we're going to talk about their question in listener mail. So
0: You think it's that low, 50 or 60%? (laughs) I would say more like three out of four.
1: Well, and then there's at least 25% uh, that think they're listening to car talk (laughs) Uh, and just got confused when they were downloading podcasts.
0: The first question this week comes from Mark the Kitty Fiddler Runza, who writes, So Demarcus Johnson must be feeling pretty confused right now. Step up, step up, be a real fighter, says Dana White. Are you a real fighter when you don't even have a job fighting anymore? I'm not even a DeMarcus fan, but that was a low blow. My question being that why on earth would Dana do this when it's just going to stop future fighters from, quote unquote, stepping up? It's a pretty good question, and I do feel like the UFC is, at this point, sending some mixed messages in what it wants from fights fighters uh, who, who accept these late notice fights since... I guess on one hand, you can see why they would release DeMarcus Johnson when he comes in. What do he come in like eight pounds overweight yeah, or something I think ridiculous? Was
1: 175 catch weight. And he came in, I think at 183.
0: Yeah. On the other hand, though, the conventional wisdom on this kind of thing has always been if you, if you, as Mark puts it here, quote unquote, step up and take a short notice fight, they're sort of doing the UFC a favor and that they will, uh, they will pay that back down the line. Now, as Joe Silva told uh, Ariel Helwani after the the event, you're not really doing him a favor if you come in that far overweight. Yeah. Rare on the record interview. For yeah, Joe very Silva. rare on the record interview with Joe Silva. You know, however, I think it like it sets kind of a weird precedent not only for the UFC to cut DeMarcus Johnson, but also to release uh, Rich Adenito, uh, who had previously signed up to do the late-notice fight against Gunnar Nelson, um, but then and then said he couldn't do it because he wasn't going to be able to make weight. It's, it's odd to cut guys in that situation, kind of after any outcome, because especially considering the rash of injuries they've had lately, you want and need guys who are going to quote unquote step up and take those fights. And at this point, if I'm a UFC fighter, I feel like the lesson coming out of, of this latest debacle is, you know, don't even answer the phone when yeah. they're calling to see if you if you are going to take a late notice fight.
1: And I think that's kind of the the root of the, the question here is are you is the UFC just sending all the wrong messages by because that's essentially what they're telling people, like, don't agree to anything, uh, don't even answer the phone when we call, and you'll be a lot safer than if you try and help out. Because Rich Antonino initially saying, okay, yeah, maybe I can I can take that bout, then saying, oh, well, I can't make 170, and then they say 175, and says, okay, and then, no, I can't make 175, and so they finally just said, screw it, we've had enough of your flip flop in Rich Antonito and your cut. Uh, and then when you go to DeMarcus Johnson, I mean, I don't understand, for one thing, how DeMarcus Johnson is number two on the list of guys you ask. Because uh, Joe Silva in that interview said, hey, I've got a bunch of guys that fight that want to fight. You're not doing me a favor uh, if you can't make the weight. Well, why would you go number two to the dude who uh, has just been off a of 45-day suspension? I mean, there were like, I think, what, 56 days between his knockout loss to Swick and his submission loss to Gunnar Nelson. And he was suspended, medically suspended for 45 of those days. Like, of course he's not going to be in shape. Of course he's going to have trouble hitting the weight. All that stuff just makes sense. I would think that you would expect that. Uh, when the guy tries to, to step up and do you a favor anyway, uh, and then you say, okay, well, you said yes, and then you, you couldn't get down to the, to the weight. Therefore, that plus the loss means you're out of here. I mean, that's the dude who I would think you'd want even more because he is he's doing something that's a bad idea for him. And there are some of these situations where the UFC needs guys willing to take chances and take risks that are bad ideas for them not only coming off of that medical suspension uh, but just the point he was in his career he probably should have said wait a minute if I lose one more I'm probably done I want to take a little bit more time and make sure this is not a late notice one but no he didn't do that I mean he he took that risk it was pretty reckless on his part but that was a situation where the UFC needed somebody willing to be reckless uh, and then he got punished for it sending all the wrong mess I mean if you're one of those fighters out there right now you're saying, "Hey." No way! I'm taking a chance on any of that kind of stuff. I'm gonna wait until you offer me about two or three months out, and I have plenty of chance to prepare for it. Otherwise, why bother?
0: Yeah, I think you bring up a good point. I think the biggest kind of head scratcher of this entire scenario is why even ask Demarcus Johnson to take that fight, especially at that weight class, where they've got you know guys falling all over other guys in that particular at that weight. It's not like they're they're hurting for warm bodies. The second question this week comes from Joshua Derringer, who writes, I'm always surprised in interviews when fighters claim to not watch any tape on their opponent. Do you think that more fighters should watch tape and not leave it to their coaches? Uh, yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing. I mean, everybody sort of has what works for them, I think. Some guys, like say a John Jones, are big, big time game planners and do a lot of uh, pre-fight video watching and uh Kind of strategizing and coming up with a, with what they think they should do during the fight and what will give them the best success. And if you know other guys, if you take him at his word, a guy like Chael Sonnen pretty much says, "Hey, it's a fight." We're going to go out there and fight, and one of us you know, is going to win, and one is going to lose. So well,
1: I think the, if you take him at his word is an important sure, caveat yeah. there. I think yeah. a, a good portion of the guys who say they don't watch any tape are just lying. You think that it's just gamesmanship? I'm sure some of them really are serious that they don't watch any tape, and they do have coaches who watch tape, and then will tell you, okay, here's what I saw, here's what we should focus on. And I think some of them really do feel like uh, if they watch tape on a guy, it might get in their head in the bad way. Um, So And like you said, yeah, people have different things that work for them, but uh, can't rule out that some of them uh, are just saying that, just because they don't want to have to answer questions about the guy, what he does
0: well, stuff like that. Uh, Question three this week comes from Philip Sellers, who writes, After watching the Glover-Tashira-Fabio Maldonado fight, I'm wondering... What should be the qualifications for a doctor stoppage in a fight? Should the doctor be able to say, okay, this guy has gotten beaten up enough? Or should that fall on the ref to call a TKO during the action? Yes, yes, a thousand times yes. In fact, that's sort of what the doctor is there for, is to decide when a guy has been uh, has taken enough of a beating. And frankly, that Fabio Maldonado-Glover-Tashira uh, fight, or as I like to call him, Grover to Shira, uh, probably could have been stopped a few minutes earlier. And I was a little bit surprised that the doctor let him come back in after the first stoppage yeah. to look at his terribly well, scarred up face. I think
1: the question maybe more is, is the doctor just looking at the actual fight that's going on and being like, well, this dude seems like he's getting his ass kicked or should the doctor be like. I'm stopping it because your eye is too swollen or because you have this cut that looks dangerous. I mean, should the doctor stop it just because it looks like things are going badly for you or should he stop it because you have some actual uh, injuries that he can see that which will impair your ability to continue fighting?
0: Okay, well, that's your interpretation. Would you like to answer <laughs> that question or just sort of restate well, it? Well,
1: I think it's dangerous for just if we get into a territory where have the doctor just come in there and be like, I don't know, man. Looks like you're getting your ass kicked pretty good. I'm going to stop. I mean, he should be basing it on something physical. Like, that's why we have the doctor there. I mean, the referee is the guy who should be like, okay, you're not fighting back, and you're getting the shit beat out of you, uh, and I'm going to stop it on those grounds. Uh, the, the doctor is there to be like, okay, I'm stopping it because that eye looks fucking nasty, and uh, it's not going to lead to anything good for you.
0: All right, well, we might disagree. I don't know. Uh, question number four from this week comes from b mills who asks is dave herman some kind of retarded Uh, (laughs) wonderful phrasing yeah i agree uh b mills goes on to say i don't mean that as an insult
1: no not at all (laughs) all due respect to dave herman who he thinks might be some kind of retarded
0: uh i just watched the guy fight and he seems like he doesn't understand why he's there now i'm not sure that i would go as far as to say that I think Dave Herman is a retarded, but (laughs) I agree with the general sentiment of the second sentence of this question that when Dave Herman fights, probably the most frustrating thing about it is that he appears to be a, an athletic and somewhat talented heavyweight. And when he fights, it's like he doesn't give a fucking shit at all if he wins or loses or indeed as B Mills writes, <laughs> why he's there yeah uh, you yeah, know it seems like he he has a problem
1: taking it seriously enough until the situation itself is really really serious which happens all at once with heavyweights especially but like you know he's kind of grinning in there he's got his hands down it seems like he thinks that we're all there just to fuck around uh and then oh shit things have gone very very badly and it's too late to do a whole lot about it i mean i don't know how much of that is just like the appearance because he seems like he's kind of goofy in there or like you know maybe a little too laid back at times. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I wanted the same thing watching the Big Nog fight because you, you know you just want to shout at the TV like, "No, this is the real fight, Dave. <laughs> this is this is it. This is the only one you're gonna get. Like it's not, this is not the warm up." I don't know. I don't think that makes him some kind of retarded. Um, and of course, yeah, no, you didn't mean any offense by that. Um, but uh, yeah, you, you do wonder. Uh, how much of that is just appearance-based and how much of that is, like, Dave Herman really uh, does not take Nubaira seriously enough?
0: Well, and at this point, you would think that if he has not gotten serious about his UFC career, he may have missed his chance. Because, isn't yeah. it three, two or three losses in a row for him now? Yeah. Uh, and I would be kind of surprised if they keep him around. Well, also, point. I
1: mean, I think we learned, somebody pointed out on Twitter, uh, you know, Fighting Big Nog in Rio, it seems like he gets about 250 percent better when he fights in Rio. And somebody on my Twitter pointed out on Fight Night, I'd rather fight the Undertaker uh, the Undertaker at WrestleMania than (laughs) than fight Big Nog in Rio. Uh, Yeah, I don't know what it is. I mean, he can limp to the cage like he's an arthritic old man,
0: and somehow when he gets in there, uh, he turns it on. He can still fight. Well, that's it for listener mail this this week. Uh, if you have a question, comment, or concern for the podcast, you can hit us up. Go to our website, uh, comaineventpodcast.com, and click the handy link at the top of the page that says "Email the Podcast." Uh, but as for right now, you're listening to the Co Main Event Podcast, uh, and we are going to go ahead and segue straight into round number one right now. I have to admit, I kind of thought what Anderson Silva did against Stefan Bonner in the main event of UFC 153 was the damnedest thing I've ever seen (laughs) inside a, a cage built for fighting. And, you know, while the fight itself certainly wasn't competitive and it wasn't meaningful or maybe even particularly relevant to the MMA world at large, I thought that in retrospect, the sheer spectacle of it was kind of incredible. Um, Stefan Bonner may not be a top level fighter and, uh, but, you know, by, by sheer virtue of the fact that, that he's, that he fought his way into the UFC and has stuck around this long, he's also not a complete joke. So the notion that Anderson Silva could just kind of clown him so badly in the middle of the, of an actual fight was to me astounding. Um, and in a way it kind of made the, the fight itself more compelling than I would have thought previously before we went in Ben I'm interested to know did you feel this the same way or or did you come away thinking that it was just a, a farce from from start to finish
1: no I because I too wondered when this fight got signed you know what could Anderson Silva do here that where you would say okay that was that exceeded my expectations or even met my expectations because it just seems like one of those fights where he's expected to so thoroughly dominate him uh, that you know how how can you impress people at that point I Around the time where he backed up against the fence yes. and kind of put, and put his hands down on the sides and gave Stefan Bonner this look like, no, come on, I'll, I'll give you a few.
0: Like, this is where you want me? Okay, yeah. I'll stand here.
1: I'll, I'll stand here and, uh, and and put my chin out there and let's see if you can hit it. Let's see if you can do something about it. That's the point where you're like, okay, Anderson Silva has decided one way or another he's going to give these people their money's worth. He's not going to just say, all right, you, you paid your money, we... we gotcha, we we convinced you to buy this stuff, Uh, but now that you're already sold, I'm just going to go in here and do my work and get out of here and and not care whether or not you feel like it was worth it or you feel like you were entertained. No, he's one of those fighters who can say, okay, these people deserve a show. And he can give it to them.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about that. Like, do you think that this is an instance where we we should give credit to Anderson Silva? Like, he inherently understood going in that this this fight appeared on paper to be such a mismatch that he needed to give people, like, something that they'd never seen before? Or do you feel like this is a thing that he decided to do at the spur of the moment? Like, because, you know, I'm not sure that I would ever uh charge anderson silva with being the most calculated dude in the world and and it's a little it's almost easier for me to believe that he would go into this fight sort of without a plan and then have something occur during it that either like pissed him off or or made him realize what a kind of a farce it was and then that's when he would just kind of decide out of the blue and and you know in in an impromptu way to be like all right fuck this guy (laughs) i'm just gonna stand here and we'll see what he can do
1: well when you think about it it's really not that different from some of the times when he has fucked with people in the octagon before it's just that this one instead of fucking with them for the entire distance of the fight and kind of screwing around uh he just fucked with Stefan Botter enough and in an interesting way and then put him away uh, to where it was. Fu- it's like he's refined his fucking around technique uh, over the years.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, if it's the former, if you believe that it's the former, if you think that Anderson Silva went into this fight thinking in his brain's heart that oh no, he needed to do something like particularly noteworthy here to even make it worth the crowd's while, then that kind of represents a departure from the dude we have seen in the past a few years ago. Like this, a guy who went out there and appeared to absolutely totally not give a shit against guys like Patrick Cote and Talos Lydas and uh, uh, Damian Maya. Right. Like in the past, it seems like he has gone out, you know, and, and been like, hey, this is my fight, I'll do whatever I want, and if the fans like it, great, and if they don't, fuck them, kind of. Uh, so do you think that that has changed, or like? You know, I wouldn't pretend that I could figure out what's going on inside
1: the guy's head, and, and when and where he is making what decisions. I would not be surprised, though, if uh, he was a little shocked that people... Uh, did not like his earlier displays of fucking around against... I mean, I think s- some part of Anderson Silva may have thought like, well, yeah, isn't this fun? Is, look, at the, look at the way I'm clowning these dudes. Isn't this kind of fun? Isn't, isn't this a display of dominance? And then when people were like, no, you suck. We want our money back. Because uh, I remember when that little streak was going on, he would go places. He, I remember seeing him at a strike force weigh-in with Zhao uh, and people were screaming at him, I want my 50 bucks back. Uh, he was hearing that stuff a lot. So I think maybe he was even a little bit surprised that people did not like that more. Uh, and, or, you know, maybe it's that he he has that attitude in every fight where he wants to play around a little bit. And then when he does it uh, and, you know, Stefan Bonner gives him an opportunity to finish by just kind of rushing in there, then, hey, yeah, sure, he'll go ahead and take it, feeling like, all right, I've given these people enough, enough of a show at this point. The thing, to me, I wonder is uh, when he goes out there and does that, takes on this light heavyweight, makes a, a fool of his power uh, and this supposed you know, size and strength advantage that was supposed to give him a whole lot of problems. No,
0: just clowned him. Just yeah. like, welcome to Clown Town, <laughs> Stefan Bonner.
1: <laughs> clown Town, population you, <laughs> Stefan. Uh, when he does that, and then afterwards, it's like, no, I don't you know, it would be presumptuous of me to think that I could stick around and fight at light heavyweight. No, I'm a middleweight. I have teammates who fight at light heavyweight. No, I'm not interested in that John Jones fight. It's like, man, come on. You just made the the best possible case for why you should be uh, fighting John Jones there. And I know we're going to get into that like in the next round. But uh, when he goes out and does stuff like that, I mean, it's hard to reconcile those two Anderson Silva's, the one who wants to play humble in the press conference and the one who puts his hands down at his sides and invites you to punch him in the face while he's in the cage.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, when he stands in the cage immediately after the fight and is like, Oh, oh, oh I'm not the best. You know, <laughs> I'm not the best. I just, I just, what did he say? Some ridiculous Reebok com- or Adidas commercial where he said that, uh, he believes that he believes he can do things that other people think are impossible or whatever. That's bullshit, man. You know goddamn good and well Anderson Silva thinks he's the best fucking fighter who's ever lived. And frankly, if John Jones said that, we would be tearing him a new one the well, next you know, day.
1: I wondered the same thing too about if if John Jones had gone in there against Vitor Belfort, for instance, and done the same kind of fucking around. Uh, and maybe it's different because it would have been him making a mockery of a smaller guy rather than a larger guy. Uh, but if he had done some of that same kind of stuff to, to hammer home the point of his dominance, people would be so mad at John Jones for yeah. it. People, it would make some heads explode out there because people would be so angry about it. And then when Anderson Silva does it, we're like, this guy is awesome.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, but I think, and then you're right about you're absolutely right about that. But I I do think like this is a certain kind of fucking around. Like this isn't uh this isn't like a, a, a Nick Diaz kind of like raising your hands like, don't be scared, homie, kind of a way, kind of fucking around. And it's not like a, a Dave Herman not giving a shit kind of way. And it's not even like, uh, I mean, I guess it is totally to show off. But I mean, it's, it's like, to me, this kind of fucking around is only even possible because you are an android from another planet who is like <laughs> two generations beyond what your opponent is trying to do to you. And yeah. to me, like, that outweighs any anger that I could possibly feel. Yeah. Like, me being like, holy fucking shit, that's that's incredible. It's crazy that yeah. you would do that during an actual professional fight. Yeah, that he can
1: stand there uh, with his back to the cage and just give that guy a look that says, with what, Stefan, would you hope to threaten me? Yeah, Like, what could you possibly do that I have reason to be worried about? But, you know, that brings up something, though, that... In the lead up to this fight, uh, I thought the UFC did a pretty good job of calling this what it was, where it was, hey, this is a fun fight, a just for the hell of it kind of fight, no titles on the line, you know, we needed someone to step up here and save this main event in Rio, so Anderson Silva, the Brazilian hero, is going to come riding in and, and fight a bigger guy who, you know, no one really was asking for Anderson Silva, Stefan Bonner at any point uh, prior to this, but hey... It's the fight you could make, it's got some interesting elements, and Stefan Bonner's a tough guy, he's tough to put away, and it seemed like the UFC sold it on that basis. Hey, Anderson Silva is the greatest, Stefan is pretty tough, it's short notice, what the fuck do you want, here you go. Great. Uh, and that was enough. Yeah. But then when fight night rolls around, and we get to the uh, the moments of you know both Dana White and Joe Rogan yelling at each other, and Mike Goldberg and Joe Rogan talking, and... Uh, over the course of the night, it seemed like that narrative really changed. I don't know if that was just my perception, if you caught it on that, too. I don't know if I paid close enough attention to, to like the pre you were busy swaddling a baby throughout the entire thing. Yeah, rocking and singing to a baby. Yeah, clutching a baby to your breast. Uh, but it seemed like on fight night it went from hey, Stefan Bonner is a a pretty tough dude who's going to give it his best shot to, you know, I believe Mike Goldberg at one point described Stefan Bonner as one of the greatest warriors ever in the UFC, which, what does that even fucking mean? Um, And also, I mean, come on, let's not act like beating Stefan Bonner, a a journeyman light heavyweight who was kind of basically more or less retired before he got this fight, uh, is itself that impressive. I mean, it's really impressive how he did it. Anderson Silva took the opportunity to show us the you know, a wide complement of his skills since he had that, that opportunity there. But still, come on. Let's not act like this was... Like Stephen Bonner somehow got so much better once the UFC needed to
0: sell him in this fight. And that, by that point, it seemed they didn't need to do that. I didn't get it. Yeah, I mean, that's probably typical of just what they do on, on fight night. Like but, they... but then that, like, that destroys it when you try and do it with, when it's actually justified.
1: Like when, you know, you go... When you get another fight like a real title fight uh, that you're really trying to get people to pay attention to for legitimate reasons, and you go and and it's the same
0: hyperbole just laid on, then you're like, wait a minute, I've heard this before. So wait a second, is what you're trying to allege to me that the UFC's pre-fight sales pitches may not be (laughs) the straight dope? Like they may not be giving it to me entirely accurately? I suspect that there may be some bias. All right, let's get to this question from Marco Bucci, uh, because it's definitely one that, that we wanted to read on the podcast. As everyone knows, Marco Bucci is the official artist of the co-main event
1: yeah, podcast.
0: Pretty um, badass artist. You should check out his website. He, he wrote in this week to say, uh, after watching Silva disassemble Stefan Bonner last night, it raised a question that perhaps you guys can lend some insight to. When a fighter gets outclassed to the extent that Silva outclasses many of his rivals, how much do you think it weighs on his permanent mental state? Now, having the knowledge that another human being possesses the ability to humble them on the stage, uh, to humble them on that stage uh, uh, and on a professional level. Case in point, how does Stefan Bonner psychologically recover from the fact that Silva could stand with his back against the cage and his hands down, accepting all that he had to offer and then proceed to finish him just moments later? This is like existential defeat or something do you guys think that a fighter changes as a human being after something like that has happened to him? And I think that is a pretty goddamn good question. It is. Normally, I would say that if you're going to be a professional fighter, you better have, like, the memory of an NFL kicker, you know? If you go out there and lose, you better forget about it immediately and just be able to go back thinking that if you had to fight 60 Tigers and 100 gorillas, it would be fine as long as you had the best cardio. Um, But in a case like this, man, I mean, he did get just clowned. I'm sorry to keep using that word, but he just got taunted and outclassed and and especially given that Bonner's pre-fight narrative, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, was that this was going to be the greatest night of his life. Like, I don't know, man, it would be I don't know about anybody else, but for me, it would be awfully goddamn hard to forget that.
1: Yeah, and it would. It would be awfully goddamn hard to think you had any reason to keep fighting after something like that. If, if some there was if there was another human being out there who could do that to you. But here's where I think it's important not to underestimate uh, the fighter's ability to lie to himself. Right, for sure. Uh, to I, mean, I remember in uh, when I was working for Cage Potato, we made a list once of like the top ten sorriest excuses uh, every employed by MMA fighters after fights. And I think though that like you know we have fun coming up with it and making fun of people for their just pathetic excuses at times. But in some ways, that is a necessary element of the fighter psyche to, oh, yeah, to be able sure. to say, oh, I lost because, you know, the pride officials poisoned my food in the hotel in Tokyo or something. Even if it's completely ridiculous, you got to be able to tell yourself something just so it still makes sense to get back in there. And I think I saw on Twitter where Stefan Bonner said something along the lines of, like, oh, you know, I apologize to my fans. Like, I, I feel like I let people down. And then he made a remark that, you know, that knee just paralyzed me, and I was just on the verge of recovering when they stopped it, uh, which, come on, man. What happened was the knee hit you, you fell down, and you, you covered up, and you waited for the for the referee to get in there, and you waited for it to be over, which, hell, anybody would have done the same thing once you got stuck with that. Uh, but even that, e- even telling himself that, well, the knee just kind of briefly paralyzed me, I needed a second to collect myself, and then I would have got right back in there, man. Uh, you know... That's something that the normal person who is being completely honest with themselves would not say, but that the fighter, in order to keep doing that and to to have that fighter's mentality, needs to be able to, to say that to himself and believe it.
0: Yeah, no, I, you, you can't, I mean, that goes back to the thing we've said before where like one of the great strengths and also great weaknesses of almost every guy who competes at this level is that they all think they're just about to be the champion, Yeah, you know, and, and in a lot of ways that's a necessary mindset to be able to even compete and, and, uh, and, and succeed in fighting. Cause like you said, otherwise, man, what are you even doing there?
1: Yeah. And it's also that, that necessary, even if you're, cause Stefan Bonner, I think would say like, Hey, he wasn't going after a belt or anything, uh, at that point in his career anyway, but th- that belief that like, hey, if we did it again, I don't know, man, who knows? I might I might be able to beat him again. Or like uh, when the guys will say, they'll go out there and get beat up and then be like, okay, but I learned so much from that. And now yeah. I'm ready. You know, now after that learning experience of having my ass thoroughly
0: handled. You were the better man tonight. <laughs> yeah. You were the better man. The, yeah,
1: the better man tonight. Yeah, that, that'll that fall back, which then also reminds me of what we were talking about earlier, the, uh, the greatest pre-fight interview ever from the poet philip baroni uh when he rematched minimal man who made a remark about how in the first fight with phil baroni he had learned a lot uh cut to phil baroni who sits there with a baffled look on his face saying what the fuck could he have learned
0: he got kicked in the head and knocked out what the fuck could he possibly have learned from that before we get into round two, we're going to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, the segment on the show, which I feel like is 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 fairly self-explanatory. Uh, ben, I know that you didn't come empty-handed this week to the show, so we, I know you've got an Are You Fucking Kidding Me to lay on us. I do.
1: I do indeed. Uh, and this one this one goes out to Stefan Bonner. Oh, uh, man.
0: Well, now I feel a little bad.
1: Yeah, so do I. But okay, here's the thing. Uh, Stefan Bonner, we we catch a glimpse of him backstage. Uh, before the fight, wearing a t-shirt where it has American Psycho spelled out in the Confederate flag. Yes. he then has that on his sponsor banner when he walks out. Uh, as people pointed out later, it seems to be a Dukes of Hazard kind of reference where they did have the General Lee yeah on, on his shirt. Uh, when, yeah when you get a uh, online, you can see a bigger picture of it. you can see that he, he's somehow in his in this uh, t-shirt company that he has he's standing like in the General Lee and American Psycho is spelled out. Uh, in the Confederate flag, still though, Stephen
0: Bonner, who is not from the South, no, he's from Indiana, as was pointed out by an emailer. This, yes, this week. I
1: think the emailer said, "Dude is from fucking Indiana." He did say that. Uh, also, your nickname is already a reference to one movie, right? A completely different kind of movie. Yes. Then where does this Dukes of Hazard theme shit come from? Don't know. You, you know, you get to, like your nickname is already a movie, and then it's spelled out in some shit from a TV show. Are you fucking kidding me? All you really did is then make sure that we have a reason to wonder, is Stefan Bonner somehow down with the Confederacy? <laughs> <laughs> because especially, your name is American Psycho, and you want to spell it out with the flag that represented a rebellion against the Union of the United States? Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking I mean, I don't, I don't think Stefan Bonner is actually a racist. I think it's just a poor design choice. And what happens when you know sometimes a fighter owns his own clothing company and nobody is there to tell him no... Uh, but it's just baffling. Just yeah. a bunch of baffling choices going on there. Are you fucking
0: right. kidding me, Stephen Bonner. You fucking kidding me. I agree with you. Uh you know that I don't normally like to bash mixed martial arts officials because I really do believe that they have one of the hardest jobs in all of sports. But this week I do have to say are You fucking kidding me, Fernando Yamasaki? You fucking kidding me? I mean this isn't this isn't Ken Shamrock versus Kimbo Slice. You are not obligated by the rules to stand <laughs> dudes up after forty five seconds. And like yeah maybe the drunk guy in the front row is yelling stand him up that doesn't mean you have to man and from a BJJ guy too I would expect more so you fucking kidding me you fucking kidding me trying to be the Fredo of the Yamasaki family anyway that's uh, round one for this week we will be back in mere moments with uh, round number two
1: round two Chad, I think the first thing a lot of people's minds after Anderson Silva went out there and completely demolished and made a mockery of Stefan Bonner's skills uh, was, hey, how about this guy against UFC light heavyweight champion John Jones, since he seems to be completely capable of uh, putting away 205 pounders? Why not see him against the best 205 pounder in the world? Sounds like a good idea to me. Sounds like a, a fight that would make a ton of fucking money. And yet, Anderson Silva says absolutely not. John Jones doesn't sound too pleased about it. Dana White says uh, it's just a matter of adding enough zeros to the check. Your, your thoughts, first of all, do you think we ever see this fight? Second of all, do you think we are justified in trying to push these guys into something that they don't want to do?
0: Yeah, first of all, I mean kind of kills me to say it but no I don't think we are ever gonna see it I mean hey it could happen maybe Dana White just backs the truck full of money up in Anderson Silva's driveway and and fills it up I don't know but to me at this point it seems unlikely uh, which is too bad because I really do feel like that would be a huge huge fight one of the biggest fights in the history of, of fighting as I said before I mean I think if you did it I think if they promoted it properly and and you know put it in in Cowboy Stadium in Dallas which they've been talking about doing for a long time I think that it, you would have the potential of having it be at least on the list with like Ollie Frazier and uh, Hagler Hearns um, you know in in terms of like big epic legendary fights
1: plus you'd have one you could put in boxing space be like, yeah you can't make Pacquiao Mayweather MMA gives fans the fights they want
0: to see and see I think you just said right there why this is such a kind of contentious issue now is because the the recent history of this sport and much to the UFC's credit I'll say uh has conditioned us to 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 believe that we're going to see the fights that we want to see and in this instance when it doesn't seem like we are going to see that I think we're less likely to just kind of take it on the chin and 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 lick our wounds and move on kind of like boxing fans are I think that uh like we're, we're not quite as beaten down emotionally yeah, as boxing yeah. fans. Like if this fight doesn't happen, it'll represent one of very few big disappointments in terms of like attractions that we wanted to see and, and didn't get to, um, you know, all that said, man, if I'm the 37 year old middleweight champion who was already, obviously the unilateral choice as the greatest mixed martial arts fighter of all time, I'm undefeated in the octagon there's no way in hell I want to fight John Jones. I will just say that. So, like, I kind of understand where Anderson Silva is coming from, even though at this point it seems pretty apparent that he is only interested in fights that he thinks that he's going to win. It's weird,
1: though, because how can you be the same dude who we were just talking about who puts his hands down and his back against the fence and says, come at me, bro, uh, who obviously thinks that he is the greatest fighter alive, and yet also think... Oh, but I don't know. That dude's scary. That other dude, he's pretty big and scary and he throws a bunch of spinning shit. I don't know if I want to fight that guy. It seems like those two things are incongruous.
0: A little bit, yeah. But, I mean, I think that uh, that may just be part of that, you know, I mean, maybe not fight part of the overall fighter psyche, but I think part of the of the psyche that we've come to see from Anderson Silva where, you know, when he knows that he's got you, like he's going to, he showboats a little bit. And, and you know, I'm, I'm not sure uh, prior to John Jones, I'm not sure that we ever saw anyone come along where 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 you could conceivably make the case that Silva would be the underdog. So well, I maybe that's
1: just wishful thinking on my part, but I keep wondering if Anderson Silva just knows how to how to work Dana White well enough. No, and maybe he says, yeah. hey, if I say absolutely not, there's no way I'm doing it. No one can, can convince me to do it. You know, Dana White will see that as a challenge that he cannot resist. And then we'll end up overpaying for it. And John Jones, I think, could be manipulated into doing it just because, hey, remember how many people turned against you when you wouldn't fight Chelsea on short notice? You know, a good way to, to get some fans back or to, to prove that, you know, you are willing to take the hard fights or, or step up and, and do shit like that? Fight Anderson Silva. Plus, you make a bunch of money in the process. So I, I wouldn't rule it out completely. Uh, it could just be a way to make the UFC really pry open the wallet and, and, give you a ton of fucking money, which I think they would do.
0: Yeah, maybe. But, I mean, it, it kind of goes – it's kind of in keeping with what we've seen from Anderson Silva lately where, like I said a minute ago, it seems like he's only going to take fights that he's pretty sure he's going to win. I mean, yeah. you see that when he says, no, I'm not going to fight Chris Weidman. Yeah. And then, oh, wait a second, you need me to fight Stefan Bonner at a higher weight class on short notice? Oh, I'm there. Book it. And see, that's that's – I'll do where, it to quote-unquote save the event.
1: That's where it starts to really be uh, an indefensible position – for at least long term, when you say, you know, I don't want to stay, or he- I'm not a light heavyweight, I'm not going to fight the light heavyweight champion, I got teammates who are light heavyweights who want to compete in that division, want to have a shot at the belt, so I'm not going to do that. But then when you also say, yeah, but I don't want to return to middleweight and fight the guy who seems like the number one middleweight contender either, uh, I mean, at that point, you, you know, you can't do that for very long, you're going to have to choose, either you're going to go back home to middleweight and defend that title uh, be the middleweight champion, and you know do everything that comes with that. Or you know you take the big super fights. You know if he wants to fight GSP, okay. I mean, I for one have less interest in seeing him fight GSP uh, after this weekend. I'd rather see him fight a light heavyweight than see him fight a smaller guy, even a really good smaller guy like George yeah. St. Pierre. Uh, but you you, you got to choose between one of those. Either you're going to fight the middleweights, guys like Chris Weidman and whoever else is up there. Or, you know, you know, you're just going to go after that big money in the big money super fights. You can't just pick and choose forever. I, I mean, I think it won't take long before people kind of turn on that mentality.
0: Yeah, it's weird that a couple of years ago, uh, the, the the big super fight was Anderson Silva versus George St. Pierre. And we were all like, oh, we'd be so lucky. Wouldn't Shouldn't we be lucky enough to see this fight? Oh, that'd be so great. And then I feel like as soon as the notion... Like even an inkling of an idea that John Jones and Anderson Silva could fight, it was just like, we immediately forgot about George, George St. Pierre and Anderson Silva. <laughs> you know, and give me, I take I, it. I, Don't get know, me wrong. Yeah, I'll watch it, but I also totally agree with you that it has, like, honestly not that much juice for me anymore like not that much sizzle it's just i feel like george st pierre is just way too small especially like after you see both of those dudes in person you realize like how much bigger than george st pierre anderson silva is and and george st pierre just not a very big dude and yeah he's explosive and he's got great wrestling but i'd be really surprised if he is able to go out and do to silva what chael sonnen did
1: yeah he also just the way George St. Pierre is dominant is not the same way where he you know he's not on some matrix shit like Anderson Silva. Uh, he doesn't seem like the dude who is capable of doing absolutely anything he wants to opponents, uh, even in his own weight class. He seems like the dude who is able to do whatever you do worse uh, better than you uh, and stop whatever you do best. Like that's how he succeeds. You know, fights Josh Koscheck, okay, I'll just jab you in your broken eye over and over again. You know, fights a guy who's a good striker, okay, I'll just take you down and maul you on the ground. He's not that guy. Well, he did break the eye, though.
0: Let's, I mean, let's <laughs> okay, just make yes, that point. Yes. Like, the eye wasn't previously broken. <laughs> yes. Uh,
1: but, I mean, the point is he's not the guy who is just going to be like, okay, tell me how you want to get your ass kicked and I'll do that. You know, the way like guys like Nick Diaz and stuff do. He is the guy who who has the methodical approach to it who out game plans you and can always exploit some aspect of your game which seems like maybe not going to work that well against Anderson Silva plus Silva seems like he is so good that you want to see him placed at some kind of a disadvantage you know in size seems like the most available disadvantage to, to put him at you know it just seems like unfair to match him up against a smaller guy like he he's the one who should go out there you know with one hand tied behind his back not the other guy
0: yeah Well, here's a question, though. If the John Jones-Anderson-Silva fight never happens, do you feel like either guy's legacy suffers because of it? I would say, in the case of Silva, not really. Because if he turned around and walked away tomorrow, he would already be the greatest fighter of all time. The guy's 37 years old. I'm not sure that I would particularly look at him and be like, oh, well, he didn't fight John Jones, you know, right at the end of his career. So that definitely undermines all the things that he did.
1: Yeah, I think... Here's where I think uh, something weird and interesting could happen. Uh, right now, they're both saying that they don't want that fight. Right. Whoever breaks first <laughs> and says, "Okay, I'd take that fight," then the other guy's legacy suffers more if it doesn't happen. And if it's John Jones who you know maybe wisely th- you know, considers the PR angle in this and says, "Hey." Especially if the fight takes a year or two to put together, as Anderson Silva just gets older, and John Jones, you know, still has years and years of prime in front of him. Uh, maybe if John Jones says, you know what, hey, I think that that would be a big fight for the UFC, would be great for the sport, uh, and it would be great to see two champions test each other against, uh, you know, test themselves against each other. Yeah, okay, I-, I would do that if the UFC offered me a good deal on it. Then, if Anderson Silva doesn't take it, then you know, again, I don't think it's going to hampers legacy too much i don't think anybody's going to remember anderson silva as the pussy who wouldn't fight john jones (laughs) i I think we're all going to still remember anderson silva as being you know one of the greatest fighters of all time if not the greatest even when it's all said and done but we will remember that kind of you know if that happens that end of his career you know he avoided a fight with john jones that could have happened
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it goes without saying, kind of, that Jones has more to gain here than Anderson Silva. I mean, for Silva, in terms of hurting his legacy, the idea that John Jones is going to become the greatest fighter of all time and somehow pass Anderson Silva is still entirely theoretical, even though I feel like we... But not wholly unbelievable. No, not wholly unbelievable. I just feel like we talk about it a lot like it is a foregone conclusion, and when it's certainly not. Whereas if you're John Jones, you're already the bigger, younger, you know arguably better rounded guy. It, it To me, it makes more sense to, for John Jones to, like you said, come out and be like, oh, man, the fans really want to see that fight? Okay, well, I guess if the UFC pays me an unbelievable sum of money, I would consider fighting Anderson Silva, despite the fact that he is my, you know, idol or whatever. Because if you're John Jones, I think you're the favorite in that fight. And if you beat the guy who is roundly regarded as the greatest fighter of all time, then you can just kind of be like, see? Whereas for Anderson Silva... I, I, I mean, I just don't see the angle in it aside from oh, a whole bunch of fucking. Money. Well, yeah, that's the you know, that's the uh, that's the one upside. I think let's do this question from Josh Carey, uh, who wrote into the podcast this week to ask if Anderson Silva ends up taking all these different fights that aren't at 185. Do you think he should give up the title? If it's on ice, if it's on ice that long, that won't be good. If his next fight ends up being against GSP, that wouldn't happen until at least next March at the earliest, providing no one is hurt. That could put his next title defense in summer 2013. That's a long fucking time. Shit is just too crazy, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Shit is just too crazy. I know. Uh, Nice job by Josh Carey formulating his question in what I would consider to be the most typical co-main event (laughs) podcast question. No, but he's Um, right.
1: I think that especially if, and since we're talking about the two fights we want to see most being super fights and other weight classes, at some point, yeah, you got to put the middleweight title back in the rotation. I think the logical thing to do would be while they wait to, to sort out what's going to happen if he's going to fight uh, you know, either John Jones or GSP, he should fight Chris Weidman. Uh, even though Chris Weidman already has a fight set up, you know, but let's say Weidman is still the guy that everybody is looking at and saying, Here, here's the m- most logical contender. He's got to fight another middleweight at some point. You know, I just don't see how you keep the belt out of the mix um, while Anderson Silva, you know, picks and chooses and figures out what he wants to do next, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't think you can, as as Josh says, put the uh, put the belt on ice. Shoot, is just too crazy. It's just too crazy. I mean, uh, yeah, the weirdest part is we 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 talked about this just a little bit that. For all, for all of the dominance that Silva has displayed at 185, he has looked even better in the, the three times we've seen him at light heavyweight. And granted, he, he hasn't fought you know what you might consider to be an elite guy. Forrest Griffin, I guess, is a former champion, but I don't know if anybody was making the case of him as a really, really elite light heavyweight at the time that they fought. Um, so it seems strange to me that at this point he would not say, yeah, what the hell, you know? Yeah. I guess it doesn't seem strange. I, I understand why he wouldn't want to do it, but it seems like he could compete there. And, like, if he was still interested in, like, taking on challenges and whatnot, 205, I think, is the obvious place for him to go.
1: And now the middleweight division is actually starting to get interesting. As uh, he points out, shit is getting a little crazy there. So uh, you can't keep the belt out of there for too much longer before uh, you're going to have a lot of disgruntled fighters and fans on your hands.
0: That'll probably wrap up our discussion in uh, round number two today. But stick around. We will be back for round number three coming up right now. (laughs) Round three. Listener Eric Murphy emailed the podcast this week uh, to tell us his personal sob story about the cancellation of the upcoming November 3rd Strike Force event. Eric wrote, as I stare at my non-refundable flight to Oklahoma City, I am understandably pissed. I won't be seeing Daniel Cormier punch Frank Mir in the face, and I won't be seeing the hood fighting style of Bobby Green. As much as I have a pointless vacation to the nowhere, I spent but a few hundred dollars in the process. There are now 25 unsigned fighters who have paid for pointless training camps on the last two canceled events. I read that Strikeforce paid the fighters. Assuming that check covered the cost of camp, plus extra for little things like food, rent, and clothes for their children, Strikeforce now has the issue of 52 upset professional fighters with no fight scheduled, and only a vague promise of a quote-unquote stacked card in January. Question. How does Strikeforce rebound from this? Is there a way to make it up to fans and fighters alike? I know the promotion is about as much a legitimate fight league as my five-year-old niece is a civil engineer. But let's, for the sake of discussion, <laughs> pretend it isn't slowly decaying. Well,
1: one interesting point we have to talk about here is, uh, assuming we can take this listener at his word, there are people out there who care enough about strike force to buy a plane ticket to go to Oklahoma City
0: to see it it's sort of like seeing the last living white buffalo, right? People okay. are gonna come from miles around to see it before it, it completely vanishes from the earth. Unless when
1: they're planning their trip to come from miles around, uh, somebody is like, Oh no, I shot that buffalo last week. Sorry, I didn't I was gonna tell you guys. I just I had some other things come up and I, I forgot I didn't get around to it. But yeah, no, that buffalo's gone. Uh, well, like, but hey there might be another one in January. <laughs> January <laughs> you know, 2013. There's the thing like there can't be that many people left who care enough about Strike Force and the Strike Force roster to to patronize it and support it. And what few people there are are being like actively shoved away from doing so. By this exact brand of bullshit, right. canceling one event after another, and then promising, "Oh no, but this one down the road, this is going to be huge." I mean, eventually you run out of people who are going to give you second and third and fourth chances, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, but I mean, if you were going to plan to go to one, Daniel Cormier, Frank Mir probably sounds like yeah. the one to go to. But I think you're right. Uh, the weirdest part is, doesn't the the Showtime uh, Strike Force contract end? Like at some kind of sort of shadowy time right around January 2000. I think it, it,
1: it from what people say, I think it's supposed to end in the first quarter of 2013. But Showtime can renew it. And that's the thing that is baffling is Showtime keeps acting like they really do want to be in the mixed martial arts promotion business. Uh, and like keep saying like, hey, no, we're putting together this show in January and then Force is going to continue. Uh, I don't know if, if Showtime is just... Not seeing the same things we're seeing, they seem to act at least uh, like Strikeforce is a thing they want to continue to be involved in. You I don't would see have why. to be a fool to want to stay in the Strikeforce <laughs> business, right? I don't know. I mean, maybe if they feel like, even if it's not the best MMA promotion, and even if it, it seems like it doesn't have a great future, hell, you know, maybe for Showtime, it's, it's worth what they're paying. Maybe they feel like they get enough people who will subscribe to Showtime just to see those five events a year. I don't know. Who knows what's going on they're thinking over there because i don't know how you tell yourself that you're just going to keep canceling events and keep getting people to keep dangling that carrot out in front of people that oh no but there's going to be a stacked one in january i mean first of all if strike force did put on a stacked event at this point it would be six months before they could put on another event with anybody on it cause they just don't have enough fighters to do a stacked event and then have another one after that i mean who do they have you know, I, I don't even know what
0: a stacked Strike Strikeforce event would be at this point.
1: I think it would have to feature Daniel Cormier, Gilbert Melendez, and Ronda Rousey in order to be considered a stacked Strikeforce event,
0: right? What about welterweight champion Nate Marquardt?
1: Okay, Nate Marquardt too. Luke, Fine. what about
0: Surfer? What about Aimless Surfer dude, Luke Rockhold? <laughs> well, the thing is,
1: not only are you pissing off the few fans that care enough about you to follow you, uh, you're all like these fighters. It's just fucking unconscionable what they're doing to these fighters right now, especially because when that press release went out where they announced that they're – first of all, the press release was not, hey, we're canceling the November event. Uh, It was, Strike Wars announces January event. By the way, the November one is canceled, Uh, which (laughs) is just a bullshit way to do it. But also, they didn't tell the fighters first. You know, I had been hearing people, you know, people always have these rumors shit that they're talking about. And people kept telling me over and over again that November event isn't going to happen. So that part wasn't terribly surprising. What was surprising to me was how many fighters had no idea. Like, you've got this email list with all the reporters who you send the press release out to. Can't you keep a separate email list with all the fighters or their managers or something where you send that one out, you know, 2 minutes before you send them one so at least you can say hey we did notify them because it's like one of those things where you're calling up fighters or sending them text be like hey can you give me a comment on your thoughts on Strike Force being canceled and they're like what <laughs> I mean that's bullshit to Oh do man with these I'm on people. the treadmill right now Yeah yeah I mean they're putting in the camps they're they're preparing for that shit as if it's really going to happen then you tell them oh no wait all that was for nothing and by the way you don't have uh, the way to make a living that you planned I mean, that's just a bullshit thing to do to anybody, especially to a professional athlete who does not have that big a window in which to make a
0: living. Yeah. So uh, I'm not 100% sure about this because I'm not clued into to the high-powered corporate structure of America. But isn't Showtime a Viacom entity? Isn't Showtime owned by the same parent company that owns Spike TV and owns MTV and owns uh, the lion's share of Bellator at this point.
1: I thought we lived in a world where two media companies owned everything. So
0: have I told you about the the concept of media convergence, media <laughs> consolidation? It's fascinating. Let, bear with me here. Let me uh, dig oh, out my textbooks. Yeah. Uh, but well, I mean, if you're, if you're strike for, or if you're showtime at this point, why the hell would you not cut bait with strike force and try to do something with Bellator? If the company that owns you already owns it.
1: I don't know, man. I, to me, the, the Strikeforce Showtime stuff, the, the big question I keep coming back to is how long could you possibly do this for? Like, how do you get somebody new to sign with Strikeforce right now, right? Like, once they are disgraced from somewhere else, don't have any other options, uh, how do you tell somebody, like, come on, sign on, get on board with this Strikeforce stuff. Your, your future is going to be bright. Look at, look at all this fun we're having over here. Guys can't make a fucking living. Yeah. I mean, God help you if you get hurt and you have to pull out of a strike force <clears throat> fight because it might be two years before you get another fight opportunity.
0: Yeah, if you're Eddie Alvarez and, and Scott Coker calls, I wonder if you go to lunch with him just to just to get a lunch out of it. I <laughs> think? I would. I'd go to lunch with him just and order the most expensive thing yeah. on the menu.
1: Try and, try and get him to take you to Ruth's Chris or something <laughs> and uh, really <laughs> do it up.
0: Yeah, no, you, I mean, if Showtime renews their option with Strikeforce at the beginning of 2013, I'll be astounded. I'll be shocked. It'll be one of the craziest things I've ever seen. How I, I, I won't understand it. I'll be baffled. I mean, not only just... I'll be buffaloed.
1: <laughs> you will be buffaloed. Not only just from a business decision of, you know, why are you paying for this thing that just doesn't offer much to anybody, but... To me, if anybody over there has a soul, if anyone has any empathy whatsoever, they should let these poor fucking fighters go. That, I don't know how... Like, that's the worst thing you can do to those people, is just to keep them on with these shitty contracts, not give them fights, string them along, uh, and make them spend you know, what could be, for all they know, the best years of their career uh, doing this bullshit for nothing.
0: Yeah, if you cancel two events in a row and, as was pointed out in the email, have 25 fighters that don't have anything to do, and you can't come up with four fights to put on TV that you think, you know, even a handful of people will watch, that is bad. That's a bad sign.
1: And how are you going to convince somebody to buy tickets and plan a trip to the January event after this stuff? After they hear the, the tale of woe. And we just heard about these unusable plane tickets to Oklahoma City. Who hears that and then thinks, like, oh, but this, this next one's going to be different? I'll, I'll take the chance on that. I don't know, man. I mean, I just don't see. If you do buy Strike Force tickets and plan a trip at this point, then you deserve whatever happens to you because shit, you can't say you weren't warned. Yeah. You, can't, you can't say you didn't know that this was a possibility.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's do just saying stuff and then we will wrap up for this week. Uh, just saying stuff, the, the recurring feature on the podcast where Ben and I both make statements that we are then not asked to follow up or defend or even back with facts, because at the end of the day, we are two guys in a room just saying stuff this week. I'm just saying if I were Antonio Rodrigo Nogueira, I would take this win over Dave Herman and I would take my $470,000 reported who knows. Maybe I even made a little bit more than that. And I would take it and I would invest it in some nice, safe, slow growth mutual funds. <laughs> and I would take my 5-3 and three UFC record and my 34-7, 1-1 one one overall record. And I would take my interim heavyweight championship and I would take it walking away. And then I would never fucking come back. <laughs> Doesn't get any better than this for no Gear. It's the top of the hill, man. It's the top of the hill. No, it's a good point. You, just saying.
1: You arm bar a dude who said Jujitsu doesn't work, and you do it in Rio. Yeah.
0: Just smile and wave at the cameras and buy a hacienda outside <laughs> Rio. Yeah. This is where we the- Grow they, old. We, we go grow to Grow old with frame. the family.
1: Yeah. I'm just saying. Recently, Manny Gamburian, Manville Gamburian, uh, UFC fighter, took a little heat on the internet when a tweet and Facebook message appeared uh, in which he opined that he thought all women should be slapped once a week in order to remind them that they are the weaker sex or something along those lines. Hmm. Uh, this, understandably, was, was not received quite so well once the world found out about it. <laughs> um, and then Manny's response was to say that he was hacked, uh, which, of course... You know, the quick go-to maneuver of anybody who tweeted something that they then regretted or got in trouble for, it's always, it's always those damn hackers out there doing it. Now, I can't say for sure that that's not true, but I did look back at some of Manny Gamburian's tweets and saw an earlier one from October 3rd in which he tweeted, Every girl is like an Easter egg. They all have the deferent, spelled wrong, colors, but there, wrong there, all the same shit, all capitalized, from the inside. Frowny face, pound, real talk.
0: Now Wait, that's
1: real talk? Apparently it is. Okay. Now, I don't know if he was hacked all the way back then, too. (laughs) Uh, And also, looking at his other tweets, he seems to love either the happy face or the frowny face emoticon. Uh, but if somebody did hack Manny Gamburian's Twitter just to write, you know, sexist caveman shit on it, they're doing a really fucking good Manny Gamburian impression. Uh, so much so that makes me wonder why you would bother hacking a dude's Twitter if you're just going to turn the, the volume up on the regular shit he's already doing ever so slightly Um, also makes you wonder why the dude would not realize he had been hacked sooner. Does he not look at his own Twitter to see what has been posted there? Uh, I'm just saying, maybe not the most believable claim there. And if you are going going to hack somebody just to do an impersonation of them, I'm just saying either you're really, really pathetic or really awesome. I'm just saying.
0: We're just saying. Anyway, that's the show for this week. You've been listening to the co-main event podcast. I'm Chad Dundas from ESPN.com. That's been folks from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com. We will be back next week with lots more mixed martial arts talk, banter, debate, arguing, shouting, drinking, all kinds of stuff. Um, but for this week, we're done. That's it. We are out. You know, if I'm a computer hacker mm-hmm. who has spent years honing my skills, I think probably one of the things I would definitely do would be to hack Manny Gamburyan's Twitter account and then post shit that sounded like stuff Manny Gamburyan would actually post, yeah, just because you want to defame him to all six
1: thousand some of his followers.